G'day listeners, I'm Rob. And I'm David. And welcome to the Doctor Who Show, Episode 8. The show where too much Doctor Who is barely enough, now with added co-host. Hi David. G'day Rob, how's it going? Not bad at all. I think uh, Sydney's having Melbourne-like weather at the moment. We're a bit chilly up here. Uh, well, Melbourne's having Sydney-like weather and it's not very pleasant, so... <laughs> and the banter begins. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, listeners, you might recall David being on the Doctor Who show episode number two back in February, uh, where you came on the Who Teaks Roadshow segment, David. That's right, that's right. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and now that I'm thinking, you know what this show needs? It needs a co-host. I thought, you know who I'm going to get? I'm going to get David. And here you are. And I'm absolutely flattered and very happy to be here. Very, very kind of you, man. Oh, my pleasure. Now, look, for, for people who might not have heard that episode, maybe don't know who you are, uh, I guess if they haven't listened to the Blue Box podcast, they might not know who you are. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yes, um, yes. Can you give us yeah, a quick background on on yourself and Doctor Who, maybe when you became a fan, what you've done in fandom, any notable moments perhaps over the years? Uh, sure. So I, I can say that I've literally been a fan my entire life because my my father grew up as a fan. Um, and infamously, he actually saw season five completely twice because oh, he wow. saw it. Um, he saw it in the UK as a thirteen year old boy. Then the family emigrated to Tasmania, and it took you know a year for it to come out in Australia. So he saw the whole season lock stock again. So Evil Tomb, all of those shows he seen he saw twice. So um. He um he definitely instilled a love of the show and a lot of other TV shows into me. And when I was younger, I used to get him to read the Target novels to me as bedtime reading before I was old enough to read them myself. And of course, as you would know, Rob, growing up in Australia in the 80s, Doctor Who was just on all the time, whether it was the new stuff, the Davison stuff or the Colin stuff being shown. Yeah. Seemingly endless repeats of Tom Baker and John Pertwee and the occasionally Troughton. So I, I grew up, you know, just around Doctor Who and... In the late 80s, my dad and I both joined the local Doctor Who club. And, um, you know, that was great. We were able to swap tapes and had screenings of old stuff from the 60s and, you know, very, very dodgy audio copies of stories and <laughs> all, all that sort of really good stuff. But as a teenager, I really got involved a lot more and found friends in the club who are still friends of mine now and um, got involved in the committee. Right. Uh, probably the highlight, the highlight would be um, the group of us put together the Time Storm convention, which was, I think I'm correct in saying, the last fan-run convention in Victoria, uh, where we had Sophie Aldred out. That was a really, really fun weekend to be a part of. Um, moved on from fandom for a while, like most people, particularly when I started working, but then got back into it formally um, in the lead-up to the 50th anniversary, and I was actually the president of the club down here for the 18 months leading up to that anniversary. So that was, that was a pretty cool time as well. But other than that, um, podcasting's now, I think, the way that I, like a lot of people, are involved in fandom, and it's, and it's worldwide now, which is really, really kind of cool. Oh, abs- absolutely. And I was having a dig earlier about the Blue Box podcast. I mean, that's where I think I first came across your name, because you you write into to podcasts and, and share that fandom, and now you've got your own podcast to do it on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's very, very cool. And um, I've done a couple of appearances on 42 to Doomsday as well, the other local podcast. So that's right. It's... um. It's it's kind of replaced that social fan club thing, I think, for a lot of people, um, especially here in Australia, where because we're such a small population spread over such a wide area, there isn't always that critical mass to have a really good fan club locally. But with a podcast, you can find the audience anywhere. So 
Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. I feel sometimes like, uh, you know, fans in, in America making podcasts or in the UK making podcasts are just as much uh, a family for me as, as people who I might have previously met at an RSL club, you know, down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You really feel as though you know them, which maybe is a little bit cheeky. I don't know, but it, it's it's... Yeah, it's like being part of the one group. Now, just going back through your, your story there bit by bit to unpack it, it, it's amazing. Your dad must be one of the few people who have actually seen that, that season twice like that. I don't think many people would have seen it once in the UK and then gone to another country to see it. You know, no, no, definitely. There, there would be very few people who have done that. And, and it's, it's great that he kept his fandom in, into later life to join, join the club with you. I think that's, uh, that's quite notable too. Yeah, look, it was, it was that sort of thing. I mean... I guess like a lot of Doctor Who fans, I wasn't particularly good at sport as a kid. And um, joining a Doctor Who club was kind of, you know, a, a good father-son activity for us to be able to do. But one of the really wonderful things about finding those uh, missing episodes back in um, 2013 was being able to ring my dad and go, um, guess what? They've just discovered the web of fear and enemy of the world and I've got copies. Do you want me to bring them around? Wow. And... For for me, it was cool to discover those shows for the first time. Suddenly, I, I was watching my dad. He was 13 again. Yeah. And just, you know, remembering these shows from his distant childhood. And that was a really kind of special moment for me. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess now in our later years, we get a flash of that when a, a show we might have watched as, as children is put on DVD or something. I mean, it was never missing to begin with. But you see it again on DVD and you get that sense of, oh, yeah, I remember this. But uh, I can only imagine what it would be like for something that had been missing and that you might have thought you would never see again, and then you see it again. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was very, very cool. That was, it was a good year for fandom, generally. There was some great stuff in that anniversary year. Mm. And then moving into the, the club and, and club life, uh, did you find it a very hard thing to run a club like that? I mean, I guess, you know, membership is always an, an issue for, for any club like that or perhaps finances. How, how challenging is it to run a, a, a big Doctor Who club? Um, I, I have to say the second time around was a lot more challenging than the first. In, in the 90s, there was almost no expectations of us. And we also had... Uh, um, a lot of the excitement around the telly movie there. There was a big booming merchandise there. Um, the Virgin books were big. Big Finish was just starting to come out, and that was exciting. All the amateur stuff was being done, you know, the BBV videos. So there was a lot of just good stuff around in the 90s. And as I say, no one had any expectations. So that was that, you know, it was, it was a hard slog sometimes to get the fanzine written and printed and prepare your meetings. But it was it was good fun, whereas... The second time around, I mean, it was still good fun, but the expectations of running a club now are, I think, slightly higher. The finances are slightly more complicated. Getting members in when people have the internet or other commitments is harder. And also finding that balance between people who just want to reminisce about the classic series versus people who just want to see the new stuff and then people in the middle who like them both equally. Yeah. It's very hard to find a balance on the, you know, on, on a meeting how you do that. So. The, the the both both stints were great fun, but the second time was was harder. 
Yeah, because the world, the world has changed. I mean, as well as fandom changing and, and those three distinct groups of the classics and the new people and the people who like both, I guess the world has changed insofar as it's it's easier not to print things anymore and just do a, a, a web-based fanzine or a PDF version of something or, you know, or, or, or indeed we're talking about podcasts earlier and how maybe podcasts can reach different kinds of fans uh, in different ways uh, regardless of location. So... Yeah, I can see the the challenges there for sure. Just from an information point of view, I mean, I can remember when Team of the Cybermen was found, and I learnt about that when a printed fanzine arrived by post in the mail, probably several weeks after it had been found. Whereas you look at Web of Fear, we were staying up watching Twitter and instantly knowing every detail of that press conference and when it was going to be launched and it was on iTunes a week later, and the whole dynamic is different, and... People don't need fanzines and clubs anymore to get their news, mm. especially down here where we're a bit isolated. You know, you can't fill that role quite the same, so you need to find a different role to fill. Yeah, I, I must admit I struggle with it in the in the here and now because I guess clubs have become more, I guess, just sort of social activities for people. You know, well, we all like Doctor Who, but we're going to a bar to drink or we're, we're doing something social. We're going to a park to have a picnic. Uh, and for me, I have that in other aspects of my life, like I'm in a car club, for example, and we do that stuff all the time. So if I joined the Doctor Who club and it was just a social kind of thing, I'd be just doubling up on what I do with the car club. I wouldn't have enough time to do it anyway. So that's why I don't actually belong to any Doctor Who clubs as of this moment in time. I have in the past, but but not anymore. Yeah, look, I'm still a member, but I'm not an active member, but I've still got a bunch of friends that I met through the Doctor Who club and other people have joined the group as time's going on, and now we do go to the pub and we still talk about Doctor Who. Now, you're right, in there we're also talking about our work, our families, our houses, mm. you know, the news of the day, but we still talk about Doctor Who and share our love and what what's going on, and um, I guess that's kind of just what a social club is these days. Just we don't have an organisation, we're just a bunch of friends with a common interest. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we might have to do a, an episode on just on clubs one day, perhaps, because I think there's a lot to sort of unpack in there. It would. It'd be, it would be fascinating if we could to look at the difference between a club here and a club in the UK where, you know, if you wanted John Pertwee and you had the money, he was a half-hour drive away, not <laughs> a 24-hour flight away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I was listening to... Um, a fella involved with Dwass on a on a recent Diddly Dumb, and it seems you know Dwass is going from strength to strength, and Celestial Toy Room is still a, a really great fanzine, and so on. So it's it's chalk and cheese in some ways to what we have down here. It, it is, but there, there was it's funny you should mention Diddly Dumb. They did an episode a few months ago with um uh, another gentleman from Dwass, and they talked about the convention scene up there, and it's interesting the the UK convention scene seems to be only a couple of years behind Australia in terms of really turning completely away from fan run to professional run. Mm. And um, there are pros and cons to that, but it's interesting that it is happening in the UK as well. Yeah, and uh, yet there are still a lot of fans who do love that that fan run, slightly bespoke feel, you know, in a in a church hall with one or two guests. Um, but it's, it's, it's dying out, sadly. Well, it, it's it's the money at the end of the day. If, you, if you're going to get a guest, pay him a fee fly them out from the UK, put them up. It's a lot of money involved and, you know, it's a lot of risk to take as well. I mean, there's, there's a woman down here in Star Trek fandom who had to remortgage her house because a, a 
convention with William Shatner basically didn't get the numbers. Oh. And nobody wants to take that sort of risk. No, 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 no one should have to. That That's crazy stuff, isn't it? That's really sad. It is. It is, it really is. All right, look, let's let's move on. I've got some reader mail to uh to a uh, reader mail. What am I talking about? I've got some listener email to read through. <laughs> talking about fanzines, you've got me thinking about readers all of a sudden. Um, Very nostalgic. Yes, yes. Okay, this is from Philip Bull. He says, "Hi, Rob." And he would say, hi, David, if you'd been on past episodes, I'm sure. Uh, Hello again from over here in England. I'm writing to say that the July edition of the Doctor Who show was particularly good. The 11th Doctor game might be simple, but a rather fun retrospective of Matt's time on the show. You should do more of these, although I suppose it would be difficult for McGann and Colin Baker. (laughs) (laughs) the letter lords was also very good this week those two produce some great stuff when they are rambling (laughs) all the best philip p.s thanks for including my message in the show that's okay philip uh delighted and i'm sure the letter lords will love to hear that uh you like their rambling (laughs) sometimes that that freestyling is much better than anything planned isn't it well this is the thing the last few months jim cameron uh, who listeners will know as one of one half of the Letter Lords, writes to me and says, look here, we've done Letter Lords for the month, um, but the letters were really terrible in Dwim, so we've uh, we've just sort of freestyled a bit. And I'm like, that's absolutely fine. That that's The letters in the Letter Lords are only meant to sort of start a conversation, and then they can go where they like. And so I don't mind that at all, but Jim, Jim is always apologising that the letters are so bad they haven't had much to go on. I'm sure that'll change, though, like when we get some new episodes in the you know year ahead. Yeah, look, I think we're, we're, we're absolutely at the low point now, aren't we? Of sort of the furthest distance away from the last episode and not quite into the announcements of the new stuff. This, I think this is the low point. It's all uphill from here, I think. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was thinking... Gosh, you know, it's it's not that long until Christmas, scary as that might seem. Uh, yes. We'll have some stuff. And then, of course, Doctor Who will start much earlier in the year again than uh, in recent years. And, gosh, it'll all be happening again very soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know we were going to talk about class. Um, would this be a good time to sort of segue into that? I think so. Look, thanks again for your, your uh, email, Philip. And I'm sure we'll do more 11th Doctor game style things Maybe David and I can do a fifth Doctor game. I think we'd both enjoy that uh, in an upcoming episode. Good idea. So, class, I, I was just thinking as we were preparing for this that we must be due for something really big with class fairly soon, you know, proper announcements of episodes, hopefully a trailer, because that's meant to be coming in October. Yeah. And we're doing this episode for September, so we must be getting something very, very soon. I think so. And look, before I go on, should one of us be saying class? Because in every podcast I listen to, someone says class and someone says class. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that to the northerners. Okay, we'll do that. Yes, class. Um, it's got to be coming very soon, isn't it? Because it'll be on TV before long. So a trailer is a is a must, you know. In you, you, would th- you would think so. And really starting to hype up that publicity because uh, I think we still we still don't quite know exactly what it is. Um, we know that it's somewhere on the spectrum between Grange Hill and Buffy or Roswell, but we're not quite sure which end of the spectrum it is or or what it's going to be like or how sci-fi-ish it might be. And I mean, all those shows, you know, Grange Hill, Roswell, Buffy, are all great shows, and anything like that I'll be very happy to watch. But we don't really know much about it yet, do we? 
Not a, not at all, and me even less so, because I've been actively not trying to follow the new series of Doctor Who, or this, or Rogue One in Star Wars. I'm trying to go into things maybe more unspoiled. I was talking about this in, in the last episode, actually. Yeah. And so I, when I got an inkling that we might talk about this today, I went and did a bit of digging just to see if there was anything new to know. I'd, I'd seen a cast photo, and I yep. and I thought, oh, they look a bit older than Year 12 types, but okay. And um, there's there's the blurb which is repeated on Wikipedia, and actually I've, I've copied down here for for people who are unaware of class. Here's the uh, the single paragraph description of it: the sixth formers of Coal Hill Academy all have their own secrets and desires. They have to deal with the stresses of everyday life, including friends, parents, school, work, sex, and sorrow but also the horrors that come with time travel. The Doctor and his time travelling have made the walls of space and time stretch thin, and monsters beyond imagination are beginning to break through and wreak havoc upon the Earth. So, yes, when you say it could be a bit Buffy-ish, I'm thinking it sounds very Buffy-ish from that kind of description. It does sound very Hellmouth, doesn't it? Oh, I can't think of a better way to describe the Hellmouth than, you know, monsters breaking through from another dimension. Yeah, yeah, so... um. As I say, I mean, we know we're going to get something in between. Now, how much of the episode is the teenager angst problems? And, you know, whether they do 40 minutes of teenager angst and then there's a monster at the end or the other way around, and we really just don't know. So it's quite, I'm quite intrigued by this thing. Yeah, and when they talk about sex, how, how adult is this? Are, are we going into really sexy sort of stuff, or is it teenage angst sexy stuff? Is it, I don't know, is you it, know... Is, is it Adrian Mole? You know, that's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> I mean, when, when this was announced, people sort of thought it was going to fill that gap that um, the Sarah Jane Adventures and then um, Wizards vs. Aliens had sort of had. But it doesn't sound like it's going to be in that gap at all. It's going to be a much older sort of gap. It, it seems that way. Um, I'm still not too sure what to make of it. I mean, I adore Buffy. Um, yes, so it, it has potential, although I did watch Buffy at a younger age and, you know, my fondness for it might come because I watched it at a younger age and when I watch this I might think, oh, this is a rip-off of Buffy and I might be upset with it. I, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what to think or what I will think yep. of it. Yeah, and that, that's quite an exciting place to be with a new series. It is. It is. I've, I've got to agree with you there. Um, it's... <laughs> As you say, though, we know so little about it, it's kind of hard to, to even talk about. No, no, but I think I think that September is going to be the month where we learn a lot, so let's watch this space. What do you think is going to happen with it here on Aussie TV? Because we have even less information about that. Look, I would have thought it would fit fairly naturally into one of um, the ABC's secondary channels. Now... Whether it goes under ABC2, which is for all the weird, quirky stuff, or ABC3, which is notionally the kids and teenagers channel, I don't know. And I think that's because we don't know enough about the episode, where, what sort of age it's pitched at. But I'd be surprised if it was on ABC1. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I think when we learn if it's two or three, uh, that'll sort of tell us where it's it's skewing. Is it going to be on the channel with Louis Theroux and... So I married a Ku Klux Klan member and all those sorts of things, or is it going to be on the more the more kiddie channel? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. That could be very telling. Yes. If if I had to guess, I oh, 
this is hard. I was going to say it's leaning towards ABC2, but... Oh, is it? Oh. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say. I, maybe ABC2. It's... Yeah, I, I, I think if I had to put five bucks down, I'd also put them down on ABC2 as being slightly older and slightly quirkier and a little bit more niche, which is, you know, what that, that channel does, but... Yeah, good for the other way. Yeah, because I've got to say, I sometimes flick over to ABC3, like when I'm going up and down the channels, or or I'm just curious as to what's on. And some of these children's dramas do seem, uh, not adult, but they are more advanced and more mature than what children's drama was when I when I was a child. So Yeah, that's, that's true. There's, but there's been a couple of very successful Australian, notionally children's dramas that have actually been sold overseas quite successfully and they are they are marked by a slightly more adult view of the world than you know the u.s disney channel tv shows for example yes and i think i've even seen some of these because i flicked on and i thought oh the production values of this look look good and oh do they have australian accents is this australian made i i had no idea because i'm just not in that demographic to know anything about these shows and i was quite surprised that there were australian shows that a looked so good and and b i hadn't heard of but it should be no surprise i guess because i'm not in that demographic anymore no we're not we're not regularly flicking on to abc3 in our age are we no (laughs) that's true so uh yeah look class watch this space i'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about it on uh, upcoming episodes I, I think so. I think next time it could be um, could be a lead topic. Who knows? I think so. Uh, what else? I think uh, Power of the Daleks has captured some people's imaginations this uh, past week or so. Do you want to tell the listeners why? Well, yeah, this is this is something that's got my cynical old fan's heart beating a little bit faster because <laughs> um, a few days ago, maybe five, six days ago from when we were recording, footage had been put up on YouTube of some animation of about two minutes of Power of the Daleks. Now, some of it was animation of footage we'd seen before, um, the factory set and that that lead-up to the cliffhanger of Part 5, I think it is, where they're all about to go out and exterminate the colony, but also a little bit of Lesterson and a little bit of Patrick Troughton's Doctor. And, and the thing that's made it really exciting is it's extremely well done. So my way of thinking is there's two possibilities. Either it's amateur-created stuff or it's professionally-created stuff. Now, if it's amateur stuff, this is very, very good amateur stuff, and why would somebody not have come out and said, yep, hey, guys, this was me, it's a pet project, what do you think, and, you know, can I get some work off it or whatever? That hasn't happened. No. In fact, I think it's been taken down. It was taken down quite quickly, in fact. So that suggests that it is professional. So if it's professional... Who commissioned it, and what's it for? Mm. Yes, it has been pulled down not once but multiple times because some people grabbed it and have been putting it up ever since. And the BBC has uh, yanked it off YouTube uh, several times now. In fact, when I went to rewatch it the other day, a uh, friend of the show, um, Weird Bean, Anthony Moran had posted it on his uh, Facebook, and I went to his copy of it, and it was gone. Uh, you know, the the YouTube link. And I've, I've done some digging in the last 24 hours and came across someone who said, you know what, I wondered if it was because of the soundtrack. You see, if it wasn't BBC's footage, if it wasn't something they'd commissioned, maybe they're just pulling it down based on the soundtrack. So he took the footage, stripped it of the soundtrack, and put it online 
and within minutes it was yanked down. And so he's come to the conclusion that if the BBC are pulling it down with no soundtrack at all, just based on the visuals, they must own the visuals. So That's very interesting. It could be the real deal. Yeah. So the question is, is this... Uh, well, well, I mean, there's so many things it could be. You know, it could just be literally two minutes for some little documentary or special or YouTube teaser or something, I don't know. But it could be that they're animating the entire uh, six episodes and releasing it. It could be that they found a few episodes and this is filling in the gaps, um, all of which are very exciting prospects. And they're all actually possible, I think. I wondered to myself, what would inspire this uh, from the point of view that, you know, classic DVD sales have been slowly going down over the years. Um, and the animated episodes, while fantastic to fans who are really into it, the animations aren't Pixar. They're not, you know, no. high quality. They're not something that people will run out and want to watch for their own, um, for their own sake. No. So you wonder how much something like this would cost versus how much people would want to pay for it. Um, Doesn't the online store concept, you know, whether it's iTunes or the BBC store, that makes these things a lot more viable, I suspect. Mm-hmm. It would. But you know what I'm thinking? Go it, on. It would cost a lot to recreate all the episodes, but what if they had some of the episodes? And that's... You know, I've been quite cynical about the Omni rumor in the last couple of years, as we've heard nothing, but that is a logical and reasonable conclusion, Rob. Mm. So, um, watch the space, because go yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too excited, and I don't want to excite people out there. No, <laughs> but, no, no. But it is a logical conclusion that rather than just sit there one day and say, you know what, we should just animate an entire show, which is a big undertaking, uh, to sit there and think, well, we have episodes X, Y, and Z. We, sh we could animate, you know, one or two episodes or three episodes maybe and have a release similar to, I don't know, The Ice Warriors or something, you know, which is partly yeah, that's, that's right. animated and partly original episodes. Yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely right. And I mean, I, I've, I've quite often shot down a lot of these Omni Rumor uh, theories in the last couple of years because they just didn't meet the logic test. Like, you, you had to sort of wrap yourself around a few intellectual somersaults to, to, to make them work. This one's a lot easier to work. And, and again, I'm trying to keep a lid on it, but don't forget that those rumors about a power of the Daleks screening have persisted now for some time. They have. Uh, I mean, I've never come across someone who was there, but a lot of people really believe that this happened. Uh, I still wonder why it would have happened, though, why they would have taken something so top secret and showed it to a room of people for no apparent reason, it would seem. But yes. a lot of people talk about it, and... gosh, And, and that's why, if this, was, if this was animated footage of the Macra Terror, you might be a little bit of a notch down, but because it's animated footage of something that's been linked consistently with a specific rumour of found episodes, it just gives you that little bit of extra hope. Mm. And hope can be very dangerous. Oh, look, I know, and that's why I say I don't want to get people's hopes up, but, but to me it's more logical to want to animate a few episodes than the whole thing, which can only lead to one conclusion, to me, you know. 
Yeah, no, look, what, what you're saying is absolutely reasonable. Um, it is based on very, very little evidence, but I think we can say the BBC seems to be doing something. Mm. Yeah, look, uh, and just to, to balance this out, I think what you said in terms of it could be from a, a documentary or something that they've only had to make a small amount of footage for, I think that's as, as logical as well, and somehow it's, it's slipped out from, from that process. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it, it could well be, because we're at the, roughly the 50th anniversary of Patrick Trouton taking over, maybe before the Christmas episode they're going to say, here's a treat for fans, we've animated five minutes of Patrick Trouton's first story to celebrate his 50 years. It could be something as simple as that, and that would be a lovely little gift for the, for the BBC to do. The fact that anniversary is coming up makes it all the more tantalising. It could be a complete coincidence, but <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty you know when you think back to the 50th year and we got those two Troughton uh releases to celebrate the 50th year it seems that you know anniversaries do play into the 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 release timing of these things so i don't know no but but as i say i'm my heart's beating a little bit faster over this one this 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 could be something i don't know how big it's something but i think it'll be something <laughs> all right well, that was a painless uh, first intro to the show. David, how did you like that? Uh, that was a lot of, lot of fun. And um, if we can have that sort of conversation when there's not a lot going on, just imagine what we can do when there's a series broadcasting. Yes, I think we, uh, we should ease listeners in because once there is a series on, whether it's class or class or <laughs> whether it's <laughs> Doctor Who coming back or, or whether it's possibly some found episodes or whatever this animated stuff is, uh, I think we've got a lot to talk about in the months ahead. It could be a very big year, 2017. I think so. And without any further ado, let's go to Ian Martin and the Doctor Who A to Z. Martin, kneel before me, Time Lord. The A to Z of Doctor Who, Part 7, G. Gavrock, 1980s television villain portrayed by Don Henderson in the classic tale Delta and the Bannermen. If, like me, you haven't actually seen this tale since transmission, you'll understand why I can't remember anything amusing about him to poke fun at. You will, however, be delighted to learn that Big Finish will be utilising the man of a thousand voices, Nicholas Briggs, to record a trilogy prequel multi-doctor musical box set of the fourth, sixth and eighth Doctor's hitherto non-existent encounters with the ham-chewing Bannerman, set in a 1950s Connecticut dance hall. Gavrock Around the Clock is released in 2018. Gallifrey The Doctor's home planet... It's effectively a quarry full of tramps, although there's a barn for stray children to sleep in, and all the Time Lords inhabit the glass-domed citadel called the Capitol. Time Lord society is comprised of three castes, the Prydonians, the Patrexes, and Slytherin. Time Lord society was founded by Rassilon, harnessing the unexpected side effects from the noble sacrifice of Omega, who died exploding a black hole. And I thought kittens could be a mischievous handful. 
to house the power of a singularity in a funky obelisk under the floor of the main debating chamber of their parliament, which is a bit like the Tories deciding to have situated Sizewell B directly underneath the House of Commons. Using this power source, the Gallifreyan elite soon used the extra petrol to fuel their experiments and become masters of time, able to travel in the fourth dimension and observe history unfold. They created dimensionally transcendental crafts called TARDISes that could adapt to each environment and blend in accordingly, but they still couldn't address the homelessness problem just outside their own capital. Content with their status as lords of time, the Gallifreyans rested on their laurels for thousands of years, growing increasingly dull, though elaborately dressed, until suddenly a bunch of fourth formers decided they'd had enough and it was time to escape before they went mad at the dullness. One was a naughty monk, the other we now know as the Doctor. He was a young Prydonian. The master was, of course, a Slytherin, and another Prydonian, a rather gifted biologist called Hermirani, joined in the spate of TARDIS thefts. These became exiled renegades, although they'd often pop back, despite being exiled, for a quick bit of intrigue or to plot an assassination or occasionally to assume the supreme political office. Then there was a time war against the evil Daleks, and the best plan the Time Lords could think of was to resurrect the long-dead Rassilon to lead them once again, safe in the knowledge that he definitely wouldn't come back as a deranged maniac. The Master found the war a bit much, and disguised himself as a human baby in something called the Silver Devastation, which is presumably the Time Lord equivalent of a branch of H&M. And no one knows what happened to the Rani or the Monk, but the Doctor won the Time War by regenerating into a special War Doctor incarnation whose two secret weapons were mild testiness and arthritis who was able to use these abilities to destroy Gallifrey and, in so doing, wipe out the Daleks too. Gallifrey then spent an indeterminate amount of time peering at the universe through a small crack, before finding the Doctor again and gifting him a whole new regeneration cycle in exchange for never coming home. Two years later, the Doctor finally and triumphantly did return to Gallifrey, glowered at it, yelled at it, then did another runner, because, those fabulous robes aside, Gallifrey is still bloody boring. Genesis of the Daleks Often held up as a classic, if not the classic story, of classic Doctor Who's classic run between 1963 and 1989, Genesis of the Daleks is a six-part story famous for introducing Davros into the mythology and featuring a couple of guest stars who would go on to star in Allo Allo. Seriously. Lieutenant Gruber, for one, and General von Klinkarfen. The story is a simple morality tale. Does the Doctor have the right to interfere in the history and development of the Daleks, avert their creation, or find some way to make them chill out a little? Sent back in time at the behest of a sort of Time Lord jester, the Doctor ponders this question while splitting his time between the Thal Citadel and the Khalid Bunker, two hermetically sealed survival shells really quite close to each other, on a, a whole planet otherwise ravaged by war. The Thal Khalid bases are so close together it's as if, I don't know, as if Earth was brought to its knees by a bitter war of attrition between enemy races based in Hoban and Leicester Square. 
Both the Thulls and the Carlids sport big hair and massive sideburns, as if for all the world we were witnessing some West London repertory company of the mid-1970s rehearsing a richly allegorical play about Nazis' mutually assured destruction and the fallen Madonna with the big boobies by Van Klomp. The Doctor is captured at one point and records a tape, no, really a big reel-to-reel job, warning Davros of every single Dalek defeat ever and how to avert them. Then decides on balance this probably wasn't a great idea, so he destroys the tape, which allows all those defeats to stand. As we're not at home to Mr Spoiler, I won't tell you how the story ends, or if Davros goes on to successfully create the Daleks. What I will say is look out for some increasingly flamboyant and protracted deaths as the Khalid military coterie is whittled down in a ruthless coup by some pepper-pot-shaped Aravists. Nida's little scream in particular is a joy. Seriously, most classic-era fans will tell you this is the best story ever produced, but myself I'd rather stick on the visitation with a nice cup of Earl Grey. Genesis, Time Worm 1991, and with no new Doctor Who on our screens, the series continued in book form in a new series of adventures known as The New Adventures from Virgin Publishing. The first book in this awesome and legendary series was part of a four-volume miniseries concerned with the villainous Time Worm, a legendary creature from Gallifreyan myth and superstition. Formed by an evil alien called Ishtar, melding with a source of unimaginable power and becoming a creature of great power capable of travelling time, you could say that the Time Worm was a sort of... hybrid. In other news, the book broke new, more adult ground by letting Ace get her norks out for what was certainly not to be the last time, and the bulk of the story was set in ancient Mesopotamia and had something to do with Gilgamesh. But I was a kid at the time and I found these bits quite dull. The book was written by John Peel, whose favourite song was Teenage Kicks by The Undertones, and whose BBC radio show became a spiritual home for music fans and kick-started the careers of many indie bands in the 70s onwards. Peel is commemorated with his own stage at the Glastonbury Music Festival, where the bad food and lack of sanitation lead to some festival-goers becoming dark, menacing hybrids themselves. Genitals of the Daleks an early 2000s porn version of Doctor Who created for the internet, in which a character called the Cockter and his companion, Belinda Blumenthal, rub up against a rowdy race of randy robots planning to inseminate anyone and anything they can find. It's mostly eye-watering and unbelievably embarrassing, and none of the actors look pleased to be there, even the ones who haven't appeared in anything during the 30 years since Allo Allo finished, and they'd be forgiven for wondering if they'd ever work again. There are some unbelievably flamboyant and protracted money shots, and, in particular... Nida's little scream is a joy. Crack, V. A rent in the space-time continuum that kept showing up unexpectedly in the wrong place. Gonad. A character from Planet of the Daleks portrayed by the actor Teniel Evans, who also appeared in Carnival of Monsters as Major Daly. Gonad was a surly, taciturn Thal in a ludicrous suit best described as a man of few words because the side and a half of pencil day four that Terry Nation could be asked to submit didn't really actually feature much for Gonad to do. Some say he was only written into the story because his existence and relevance to the plot was bafflingly extrapolated by the script editor from a crude sketch Nation had drawn on the sheet of paper, as was also the case with the characters Shaft, Droplet and Bellend. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Letter Lords. <laughs> I am MCJ Dog, and I have DJ Bizzle Fizzle with me. <laughs> what the hell? When did you get all hip hop, Jim? It's, it's I've hard. always been hip hop, can't you tell? <laughs> yeah, the one person I picked has been hip hop is you. <laughs> Hi, Jim. I'm not quite sure how to take that. <laughs> what, did you, what did you call yourself? Uh, MC... MC J-Dog. Wow. And That's I'm, how I'm known in this hood. I'm the Bizzle. You're, yeah, you're coming at you. In your ears. Yeah, in full effect. <laughs> or alternatively, I'm Bob Fleming from Proctor Who. Yeah, and I'm Jim Cameron from the Greenhawk Podcast. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> what up? <laughs> oh, my God, we sound like middle-aged men trying to be hip. Terrible. Well, that's what we are, ter- aren't we? Ter- well, at least I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're a younger man, so I'm still trying I'm, to be I'm hip. not far off you, Jim. I'm not far <laughs> off you. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're not here to discuss uh, rap. We're here to discuss... Letters uh, and that. Yeah. Doctor Magazine, issue number 502, mm. marks September. There was a month in advance, and I've never understood that. It's the same with all magazines, isn't it? It is. I'm going to put a little uh, caveat in here, Jim, um, mm-hmm. and just to inform our dear listeners. Basically, as you've discovered in the last few episodes we've done, there's not a great deal in the letters, which is something we never envisaged when embarking on the letter lords. So we're just going to expand this segment now into the Doctor Who magazine, but still got the letter lords because we count that first. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much where we're going, I think, Jim, isn't it? Just to let people make people aware, really. Yeah, I mean, if there, if there are letters, we'll certainly do them. And, and um, in a, a break of our recent format, we have got a couple of letters to talk we about. We have, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, as you say, um, we might have to stretch uh, into the rest of the magazine to make up our allotted time. Yeah, but, and there's, uh, there's not wrong with that. No, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, uh, remarkably, we have a couple of letters. So, uh, Bob, do you want to kick off with a person? I will indeed. Thank you, Mr. Baker from Nick Savage, 18 years old from Rugby. Uh, the fantastic Tom Baker special issue has in- invited me to share my experience of meeting Tom Baker three years ago. It was on the Strand in London, and I waited two and a half hours in, a f- in the freezing March weather uh, to meet him. It was definitely worth it. He was so charming and funny. I did the old cliche of offering him a jelly baby class. <laughs> I bet he still loves that, like. Uh, and the old dog took the whole packet out of my hand. <laughs> I also asked him to sign a, a copy of his autobiography. He didn't say, ah, yes, I read it recently. Didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> a lovely man. That's great. That's a lovely, lovely little Tom Baker story. That's brilliant. Do you think he always uh, nicks the bag of Jolly Baby so that he always has some on him to offer to other people? It, he must do. It's, it's, mm. his, it, you know, it's his little thing, isn't it? And the fact it's mm. still going now, you know, people still associate Tom Baker's doctor with, can I have a Jolly Baby? Would you like a Jolly Baby? It's amazing, <laughs> considering he was Doctor Who in the late, you know, he finished in the early 80s. It's, uh, it's awesome. And it is. So, so long may he continue to steal Jolly Babies so he can get yes. them out. Yeah, but that's class 18 year old as well, that mm. guy. Lucky chap, meeting him at 18. Yes, so that's, uh, yeah, first light up. And uh, the second one is from Neil Stewart Nichols from Glasgow. (laughs) Wow. Sorry to all our Scottish listeners. Sorry, Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, he says, Far be it from me to imply that Tom is a crafty old bugger, but having an ultimate interview means that he'll be around to read the letters page full of love for him that usually only comes in sadder circumstances. Much like his gravestone, it's not the end, 
but the moment has been prepared for anyway. <laughs> that crafty old bugger. <laughs> Everyone's calling him a crafty old git, aren't they? Bless him. <laughs> but he, he is, though, isn't he? He's brilliant. And that, that's a compliment. Yes. I know, like, obviously calling someone a bugger. It's kind of, it, yeah, it's a bit of a compliment, I think, the word. Yeah, bugger. Because it's kind of like, ah, yeah, your little terror, that's cool, that. Well done. Yeah, it means they're a bit of a, bit of a character, bit of a, I suppose. Bit of a cad. And to- Tom <laughs> Baker's yeah. definitely a cad. So well, He certainly was yeah. Yeah, in his day. That's lovely. Mm. So, yeah, that was a fallout, I guess, from the uh, Tom Baker special. Yeah. But, yeah, let's talk about this uh, edition. Mm. The second half of a, a fascinating interview with current, but not for long, showrunner Stephen Moffat. And it genuinely is a fascinating interview because mm. he's revealing stuff. He is, yeah. We may never get the... Um, uh, writer's tale type book from him i hope we do that may, not, yeah. that may not happen but we do get the odd snippet of uh insight into you know the processes from him in the magazine mm. so this is a good example of that i go as far to say it's the most insightful interview of Stephen moffat i've read mm. it's nice it's revealing it's you know yeah it's the best i've read there's no there's not a lot of cloak and dagger it's just like this is what happened this is the pressures I'm under. This is good. This is bad, and quite honest about it all, really. Brutally honest, really. Yeah. Very, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, this one has um, a bit about how he got the job in the first place, you know, the the moment <laughs> that he, you know, he was offered it, uh, and the moment when he handed the job over to Chris Chibnall and when he offered it to to him. Yeah. Interesting that he himself, Stephen Moffat, found himself kind of all at sea in the taking charge of the program. Straight, Three straight months. In. Three months of umming and ahhing, wasn't it really? Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, look, what the hell is this when it actually started? Um, he believes that Christian Will won't feel quite as, you know, at a loss to know what's going on because of his work on Broadchurch. So, you know, that um, transition might be a little smoother than it uh, was for him, although it appeared pretty smooth on screen. Mm. But it's the old thing about the, the graceful swan with the uh, legs kicking like mad under the surface, isn't it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a massive feat, especially being a fan of Doctor Who. And I love the fact that when he asked his dad about it, his dad sent him a picture of him yeah. when he was like 10 year old, you know, with Doctor Who magazine in his hand, saying, mm. well, you are going to do it, aren't you? Because you'd be yeah. mad not to. But I'm, if I ever got asked to do something in Doctor Who, particularly something like run the show or be the Doctor, not that I'm an actor or a writer, but, you know, if, if I was in that position where I was, you immediately think, well, I'd jump at the chance. But would you? Because the pressure's on your shoulders if you're the doctor or an assistant or the showrunner. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I well if I especially if you... Yeah, I don't know either. And especially if you love the show itself. Can you imagine being the person that, you know, led to its untimely I end? <laughs> or looking at, looking at yourself in the roles, say, yeah. and thinking, oh, God, I'm nowhere near as good as the others. Exactly. And I think it's such a daunting thing to be a fan because Capaldi's a, a childhood fan. and mm. uh, Well, at the moment we've got a doctor and a showrunner who are childhood fans of Doctor Who. And mm. to, to them, it's like, you know, God, I think Capaldi's got it sussed from the point of view he's in, I'm living my dream as a kid. Uh, but, yeah. but obviously Moffat's got the weight of Doctor Who on his shoulders from the point of view he's getting the scripts in, the directors, you know, everything. I know he's got a team around him of people helping him out, but he's got more pressure on his shoulders, I think, than Capaldi. But yeah, I always think if anyone asked me to do anything on Doctor Who, yeah, I'd jump at the chance. But would I be the showrunner or would I be the Doctor? The pressure, the show I love. I don't know if I would, which is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it is huge. I mean, in a way, Capaldi has the easier job, as as you said, uh, because it's it, he could just see it as another acting job if he kind of detached himself from it. You know, and he's got 
some words on a page that he has to bring to life and work with other actors. Whereas, um, you know, you've got almost everything else yeah. is, if not actually done by Stephen Moffat, at least overseen by him to some extent. And, you know, it's a big flagship show for the BBC. Um, there's a huge fandom all around the world. Mm. You know, that's pressure. That's real pressure. Massive pressure. But I did, I did like the the insight into rewrites. So mm. all the, the, the scripts that are sent in from all these writers, the fact that Moffat never got rewritten by Russell T. Davis, mm-hmm. and the fact that up to literally 30, 60, 100% can be rewritten, and that their name still goes on it, mm. the, the person that initially submitted the script. And then... Rusty Davis thought, well, do you know what? I'm just going to put my name on it. So Moffat did the, did what Rusty T did and just sort of like didn't put his name on the first two or three and then went, right, I'm going to start putting, you know, it's going to be me and Stephen Moffat kind of thing. But I, d- I didn't realise how much of certain writers that wasn't rewritten. But it's nice to know the strong ones, the candidates were, like, for example, Mark Gatiss with the Crimson Horror, which I mm. really, really like. And I've never... Yeah, me too. I'm not a massive fan of Mark Gatiss, his work on Doctor Who. I, I love Mark Gatiss. I think his other stuff's great. Yeah. But that was, that's a really good one. And the fact that he didn't have to do anything, Steve Moffat, to rewrite that. He just said, Mark, please just deliver me brilliant stuff. So I don't have to do anything because everything else is going, you know, mental around me. So he's mm. under the pressure, you know, under this pressure of rewriting all these scripts and stuff all the time, which is which is the script editor or showrunner as they're called now's job, isn't it, really, to bring something to the mm. screen. One thing that did perplex me a little bit when Moffat was saying about the rewrites are done because it's to do with the Doctor's character and the continuity behind that. I didn't think there was, particularly in the first season of Capaldi, much continuity in the Doctor or Clara. Um, and, mm. and certain characters... For example, Clara with Matt Smith, there was no continuity on there. One minute, like for example, Nightmare and Silver, she's all cocky and whatever. Next week, she's all scared and dour again. And I think with Capaldi, he was particularly in season eight, was very up and down. And even last season, I don't think he's he's got it a bit more. Moffat's got a bit more, but I don't think there was continuity to the characters, personally. Uh, and if that's something that Moffat oversees, mm. I think he's maybe let too much bleed into the the scripts that writers have written, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing if the Doctor is a, a little bit unpredictable. No, absolutely. Um, I'm not, I'm, not but... I'm saying like stuff that's just, it's completely a twist on the week before. Or Capaldi's really struggling with the lines that he's being given. He could do better than the lines he's being given, I think, sometimes. But I think we found a consistent Doctor last year, you know, in the, in the second series, but in the first year. I'm not saying he was all over the place, because the Doctor is a little bit, but there was not mm. a continuity there which I thought was overseen by one person. Because that's what I've always said about this writer's room thing, which hopefully is happening under Chris Chibnall, Yeah, is you get a team of people all working towards the same thing, so it gives the whole series continuity, which I don't think we've had. But for one man to oversee it, it's a lot of work, isn't it? Jesus Christ, you can't... Well, hopefully Chris Jimmel will, will find it you know, a little less work because of things like the writer's room. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the pressure that was on... It was, it's the um, Series 7, 7A and 7B, wasn't it, that um, Moffat was saying he had his worst time. Yeah. You know, things are getting very bleak. The scripts, are, I think, were falling through. And he all the time, of course, he's got to think about the 50th and he's got to sort of organise a script around all the people who are going to be available. And there's, there's that terrible uh, section of this interview where he's uh, saying that um, Chris Rexton was almost certainly not going to do it, but um, mm. he thought, you know, Moffat thought it was 
you know, only right to write something with him in it. Yeah, of course. And then I think I think after he turned it down, David Tennant went a bit quiet about being in the role, and then uh, even Matt Smith went off the radar, and um, he was wondering whether you know, he was going to have to do this 50th without any of the Doctors at all. And he had this uh, very brief moment where he thought, um, you know, the whole thing would be Clara, you know, the Doctor's gone completely missing, and Clara sort of sees references to the Doctor through literature, and even, you know, several famous actors would be playing the Doctor, which he'd just come across, I think, in kind of TV programmes and things like that. Mm. Or something, I can quite understand yeah. the concept, but, you know, luckily it didn't come to that. I mean, you can imagine people complaining about the classic series Doctors not being in it. Yeah. Imagine if none of them at all had been in it. Well, to be fair, I mean, it was, it, 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 well, it was perfect, the day of the Doctor, and uh, he does stipulate that in the, in the interview. Mm. I, well, we reviewed it on Prog to Who. I don't know if you guys have done it on Crinoid yet, but we all give it a, a smashing 10 pretty much. Oh, um, right, okay. Because it's it's brilliant. The only thing it lacks for me, and that's just because I'm a little Doctor Who fan, is Paul McGann. And that's it. If Paul uh, McGann had yeah. been John Hurt, but I get the John Hurt thing. And I'm not going to go on about it because mm. I've gone on about your laws before. I get it. Mm. They've got a massive actor to play the War Doctor Who. has been a spin-off character. He's a brilliant actor. It worked. Nice one. But the classic Who fan, I think seeing Paul McGann on telly, I know he only got the Night of the Doctor, which was you know, a little sliver of awesomeness, mm. it would have been nice to see Palmer again. Well, that was great. I mean, I didn't even expect that. No, that was the biggest treat ever. I remember, I think it was just, I was at a gig, and Mark was at a gig, like separate gigs, and he tweeted this, like the Doctor thing, and I literally screamed at half time. It was like, <laughs> trying to ring Mark going, you know, like tweeting Mark going, this is amazing, the best news ever. And when it came out, I was just like, this is the greatest thing of the 50th anniversary, to be honest. <laughs> so hats off to Moffat for that as well. Well, that's great. I mean, we got uh, Paul McGann and we got, you know, the War Doctor, John Hurt. I mean, yeah. who'd ever thought John Hurt would play an incarnation of the Doctor? So yeah, that worked out really well. And the whole sort of working into, you know, the moment and, uh, you know, the time locking or you know, destruction, however you want to look at it, of, of Gallifrey was incredibly well done. I mean, I thought, you know, initially when I first watched it, I thought the Zygon stuff was a bit stupid and slightly annoying. I don't mind it now on rewatch. But as a, an overall script and all the boxes it ticked. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the way it still fitted into into continuity without really treading on the toes of anything that Russell T. Davies had done, because all that stuff still exists, doesn't it? Well, I think yeah. I think it was... He, he named this one Blink and... What was the other one? As his favourite of all, of all the ones he's done. Heaven Sent. Heaven Sent, yeah. And all three very different pieces of work. You know, to write the 50th, it's like when Terence Dix wrote The Five Doctors. You know, mm-hmm. it was great because Terence Dix had done it and it all made sense. It was brilliant. And I think that this is the first time since The Five Doctors where you've got to write something mega and special because obviously it'd been off air and stuff like that. And he did a, he delivered this fantastically well and it was brilliant. And the fact that what we were saying before, he, had, he didn't even have a doctor. He had Clara. <laughs> and it, it all came together magnificently. The, the little cameo from Tom Baker at the end. Oh, yeah, marvellous. And all, you know, and all them things, and all all of the Doctors being in it, and, and a look at, in, you know, Capaldi's grumpy eyes. I screamed, <laughs> screamed at that point. It was just fabulous. Yeah, that was amazing. That, the whole, uh, I saw it the cinema, and the whole place erupted when when the eyebrows appeared. Yeah, I mean, he's named them three as being his, his favourite three that he's done. But mm. for me, all of the scripts he did in um, Russell T. Davis's era were fabulous. All of them. Mm. All of them. The, the Doctor dances, amazing. 
what a two-parter. Do you know what I mean? It was mm. the greatest. The library, one, two-parter, fabulous again. I think all of his scripts were the, the strongest by a country mile, which is why he, he always had to become showrunner. Mm. And, yeah, Blink was his second one. Now, I reviewed Blink recently on Prog to Who. You weren't that keen on it? Well, it's not that I'm not keen on it. I think it's a brilliantly clever and well-explained and sim- not simple, understandable script. It's one of them... Like, my Doctor Who, I like my Doctor Who to be... I watch it once and I'm a bit like, what happened there kind of thing, but I've enjoyed it. I like to go back and be able to watch it again and again and again and find something more from it. Now, mm. Blink is so well written that once you've watched it once and you've gone, wow, that was that was pretty good, that if you go back and watch it again, I don't get any more from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does It does make sense. And, and that's you, because it's brilliantly, perfectly written. Mm. It's just I like my Doctor Who to give me a bit more. And I also like my Doctor Who to have more Doctor Who in it, as in the Doctor. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not knocking Blink. You know, I give it a 6.5 on Prog 2, and I will stand by that. Because of the reason, like I say, I can't... I, I go back and watch it, but I know what's happened, because it was so well written. <laughs> does that make sense? I know it's a bit of a weird one. I do with Doctor Who being a bit more complicated, getting something more from it. You know, mm. that kind of thing, really. Well, well, it's interesting enough. I mean, there's a bit of playing with time in there, and I think it's done in a quite a poetic way and mm. a relatively simple yeah. way, you know, c- compared to some of the stuff that he did later down the line. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think that's uh, that's why it works so well. And in fact, every scene is so memorable. I, I suppose, in a way, it actually reduces the rewatch value, like you're saying. But um, I think the script is crackles along, and there's some great performances. The direction oh, is fabulous. terrific as well. So perhaps you can watch again for other things. But for me, that's just a fantastic piece of TV. Whether or not it's a good example of Doctor Who, perhaps less so because mm. you know there isn't enough Doctor in it. But it's yeah, it's just a terrific piece of TV, really. It is. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, the, the ones he chose, the three he chose as his best work really are three quite difficult things to do blink is a you know a doctor light doctor very light episode really yeah. day of the doctor is an anniversary featuring as many doctors as you can get <laughs> get in there and heaven sent is something that he'd Amazing. wanted to do for for a while and that's a one-hander yeah where it's just the doctor so what did you make of heaven sent amazing i mean it was capaldi it was a capaldi show and it was capaldi mm. going right I'll tell you what, all your doubters, watch this. And he just <laughs> he just absolutely... I mean, I never, I've never doubted Capaldi. I've loved him from day one. Me too. So I'm a big fan. But that just, to me, he said to everyone, my God, what an actor. What a doctor. And I, I love the, the sort of comparable or Moffat did with, this is what it's like being the script editor for Doctor Who, <laughs> is that you, <laughs> you're smashing your head against a diamond wall in repeat every <laughs> every series you do. And yeah. I thought that was quite, quite a, yeah, that summed up possibly how it would feel. But my God, what a, there's never been, I think like Blink to a degree as well, there's never been another episode of Doctor Who like this. And I can't see there being one again. I can't see yeah. anyone to be able to recreate a Doctor Unlight episode. Sorry, Doctor Heavy, Doctor Solo episode really, isn't it? Mm. It's just quite funny. You've got Blink, Doctor Light, and you've got Heaven Sent, Doctor Heavy, you know, out with, out with the two. But yeah, man, it's, it takes some kind of writer, some amazing kind of writer to write that. Now, Moffat gets his knockers, pardon my French. Um, but he, and he, and, I'm sure he does. Man, he position. does. And unfortunately, like, well, since I've been in Proctor Who, which is two years now, so we started with Capaldi's first se- season. So you kind of have to look at it more from, 
not a negative point of view, but more of a critical point of view. So I've been criticising Moffat, and I've been quite heavily critical, particularly in the finale of Series 8. But looking back on it, without being in the moments when we're reviewing these week in, week out, we're in the moment, aren't we? Where you could go back and relax and look at them. It's, it's all brilliant writing. He's a stunning, clever writer. I, 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 don't think he's, I think sometimes his weaknesses, sometimes maybe character to a degree, if you see what I mean. Like Russell T Davis did full-on sort of soap opera drama and Moffat does kind of the opposite, which I think is, for me, my preference. But sometimes I think he might lose a bit of the big finale. Basically, if he had a tiny bit of RTD in him, I think he would be completely perfect. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to preempt anything, Jim, but I think Chibnall might be the best of both. But Moffat's tenure has by far been my preference of Doctor Who. I think he's done some amazing, stunning work. Season five of Matt Smith, my favourite. Mm-hmm. Capaldi's Doctor Who, particularly Series 9, stunning. It's it's, it's just fantastic. It's it, You know, I, I was a bit nervous about him leaving, even though I knew he had to leave because it needs to start afresh. And I think Chibnall's going to be... You know, I've liked Chibnall stories. I thought the Power of Three was one that stuck out for me out of all of New Who. I love Power of Three, um, although it gets a bit of bad rap off people. Dinosaur on the Spaceship was a lot of fun. So I'm excited about Chibnall. Um, but I think Moffat, he'll be up there with, with Hinchcliffe and Holmes, you know, Dixon, Letts and people like that, and Cartmill. Well, I think I think it should be. I mean, the opinion is extremely divided. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. How, it, how can it be divided? That's what I don't understand <laughs> about Moffat. He's brilliant. Well, I think uh, you know quite a few fans are, are, are precious about um, canon and you know the history, you know the narrative history in the, in the show, and you know Moffat takes that and you know does what he likes with it. I I don't see a problem with that. I, I think no. every showrunner or equivalent has done that in the past. So I mean, Robert Holmes, the script editor, was doing it all the time. Yeah. But because that's further away in time, people seem to think that's okay and it isn't if you do it now. Yeah. But, you know, it's a, it's a great sort of sandbox, you know. He, you know. he should do what he likes with it, you know, obviously to an extent. I mean, occasionally he might step over the, the line of good taste, you know, what happened with the Brigadier, for instance. But, but, but that, I mean, that, that was always done with love. Moffat's a Who fan. And although hmm. we, we said exactly the same prog to that was horrible it was done as in Moffat's mind on a pen and paper sorry on a computer I was gonna say typewriter because I'm so so modern on his computer (laughs) that was done with like a big salute to the brig you know he's one of his favorite characters of all time but it was Mm. was terrible on screen and like you say it was a bit but that was it's just a bit misjudged but I mean it was coming from the right place I think it's just it was 100% for, for a lot of people it didn't didn't work at all and in fact had the opposite effect you know, rather than celebrating the Brigadier, you know, it, it uh, you know, cast a, a pall over that history that we've all had with him. But, you know, that, those things happen very rarely, I think, under his um, stewardship. So, like you, I much prefer the Moffat era to the Russell T. Davis era. Well, it's, it's, it's done the job from the point of view as in taking it from a very good soap opera science fiction show, kind of, which... which you know, RTD was kind of doing, I'm not saying 100% soap opera, but you know what I mean. But mm. it's taken it to America, <laughs> pretty much. You know, it's a lot more serious about itself. It, it looks stunning. You know, some of the episodes mm. look beautiful. Casting's fantastic. The casting's always been fantastic, but, mm. um, you know, it, it's the show that's taken itself seriously. And I think that's why it's gone down better in America. Also, it's got 
a lot more years behind it, but I think that's why Americans were taking it on board. It looks the part, it feels mm. the part. You know, it's it's class. He's done such a good job, Moffat. And yes, it's time for him to go at the end of this one. One thing I did like about when they asked him about, you know, Artie did did his last 15 minutes with David Tennant leaving, and he said, well, I'm not going to do a last hurrah. I'm just going to mm. start again and make new, new Doctor Who. I'm not going to go yeah. back and do an episode of River Song or whatever and, and this and that. I'm not going to do the 15-minute, you know, hats off to everyone because that wasn't Russell T. Davis writing that 15 minutes for him. He's writing it for David Tennant. Yeah. And we don't know if Capaldi's leaving. Well, he dropped a, quite a, a heavy hint that he isn't going to write this Doctor out. Yeah. But, you know, you can't believe everything he says. Absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it may, yeah, you can imagine that Peter Capaldi might want to stay on a bit longer yeah. um there's no reason that he should change because the showrunner changes you know if he enjoys a part he should carry on doing it mm. and it would be interesting to see capaldi's doctor under a different showrunner for a season or two even who knows mm. so yeah I mean, we shouldn't assume that that's going to happen i mean it has happened so far but then we've only had two showrunners and, and in yeah. one takeover so yeah anything could happen i'd be quite happy to see some more capaldi i would be but i think it will be his finale Mm, it could well be. I, yeah. I can't see. I think Capaldi would be the same. Three years is loads, and he's not, you know, the youngest. If you see, I mean, it's, it's a grueling schedule. Um, but if he yeah. does, great. If he doesn't, brilliant as well. You know, it'd be, be great to see a new doctor under a new show runner. So, but Moffat's mm. tenure, massive hats off. It's been brilliant, and he was brilliant before when he wrote for RTD and didn't get edited mm. like everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah quite. <laughs> Well, I'm certainly um, I'm picking up the Blu-rays of his series. So at uh, one point, probably when he's finished, I'll do a complete revisit of, of his era yeah. and reappraise it because, um, you know, I loved a lot of it. Some of it I didn't like. Occasionally I, I hated it. But, you know, if I watch it again, all in context, you know, I might change my mind and, and like those bits that I didn't like so much more. Well, that's what I've always, I've always found that with Moffat particularly when I've watched back the whole series when I've got the every Christmas my mum gets me the series that's been on TV oh, great. and that's and I watched that pretty much after the Christmas episode watch it all back to back <laughs> his seasons make or series sorry because we're, we're British it's not <laughs> seasons over here you know uh, but they, they all make much more sense when you watch them the full thing in quick succession yeah I bet. after watching them on telly live if you know what I mean but yeah, they always make a lot more sense when uh, when you rewatch them together. Well, he said it himself, hasn't he? That you know he's writing Doctor Who for the box set generation, which mm. you know anyone who's got their eye on what's going on probably should be doing that because that's how you know people watch things these days, particularly with Netflix. Mm. You know, they'll watch a whole series in succession, perhaps without watching any other program in between, and then when they're finished, move on to the next thing. So. Doctor Who is one of those things that, you know, if I cannot be in to watch live, and certainly we would we'll watch it, you know, in the next day or so, but particularly in uh, Moffat's era when, you know, the writing is so dense and the you know, the plot arcs are yeah. a little tricky, you know, I will go back and then watch the whole thing in that kind of box set way, in a highly concentrated way over a few days and, uh, you know, get more out of it doing it that way. So, mm. yeah, that's well, that's kind of the way forward, I think. That's the way to do it, Jim. <laughs> yeah, did a voice then. Yeah, um, it was excellent. What, what I did like as well was that Tom uh, Tom, Sa- Tom Salisbury, Tom Spilsbury. Spilsbury, Spilsbury, said that about Bells of St. John, saying that it was his favourite of whatever. And Moffat was like, what? 
And then <laughs> it was like ranked halfway through the, the whole poll, wasn't it, of where people ranked the different episodes. <laughs> I don't remember the Bells set, John. I remember the beginning, and that's it. I remember mm. the beginning, him being a monk, and I think you touched on it before we started talking, that there's something to do with the internet. Yeah. But that's about it. I know Clara's, it's Clara's proper first episode. But apart from that, I don't remember much about it. Well, I want to rewatch it just off that comment, really. Yeah, it was interesting because I think Benjamin Cook asked him what he thought a standard one of his episodes would be. So, you know, not the very best, not the least successful, but what is just a, you know, good standard episode. And he came up with this one. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's quite a good choice, really. I mean, it isn't particularly memorable. It's a season opener, isn't it? A series opener or kind of... It is. It's a seven A seven B opener, isn't it? In fact, oh god, but, I, hate, you know, I hate split seasons. It's oh, awful. that was ridiculous. Well, it was basically two. You know, if it's got a almost completely different cast yeah. and it's in a different year, it's a different series. If you ask me, but anyway. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it, I remember really enjoying it. You know, it was oh, it's good to have it back. You know, it's just you know, kind of an interesting, not particularly taxing story. And, you know, a couple of memorable images, and I suppose, the introduction of a new companion proper and, you know, kick on to the rest of the series. So I think that's quite a good choice. And I, I, I prefer Stephen Moffat's series openers. Hmm. I think there's something about the Russell T. Davis one. So it seem to be like the most half-baked episode, of, <laughs> apart from Rose, you know, they, they seem to be the most half-baked episode of, of the series. And I always thought, well, why would you put that at the beginning when you're trying to, you know, get people excited about it? Whereas um, I think Stephen Moffat's can hear about trying to get perhaps new people in or or existing viewers who perhaps aren't as committed to be as people like you or I. Hmm. So um, people might think, oh, we'll have a look at the first one to see if it's worth watching this series. And then if you hit them with a really interesting one. Well, really exciting one though. You know, you, you've got them for the series, hopefully. And I, I think he's much better at doing that than than Russell T. Davis was. Well, my favourite first episode, without a doubt, is the uh, Magician's Apprentice. That, <laughs> oh, yeah, that was I was screaming. I watched it with Jim, <laughs> our bass player, the Beggars Bunts. Yeah, and we were going mental. And at the end of it, we said, <laughs> we both said. If this is get ten out of ten on Prog to Who, then you know he wasn't happy. And then when when he listened to Prog Two, and Mark was slagging it off and being negative about it, Jim <laughs> had to knock it off the fifteen minutes. I've told about this. I knock it off the fifteen minutes because he getting so angry that Mark was negative about it because we both adored it. Like <laughs> as soon as he went on Davros, but I suppose if you're a casual viewer, it's not going to mean out to you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But if you obviously you're aware of Davros and that it's it was that was just mega and then the tank thing was awesome again controversial but yeah all of it i i loved it and me and jim were just literally buzzing all the way through it like buzzing my god i'm not from manchester in the 90s but yeah you know <laughs> it's a real balls oh yeah mate i got my hand wrapped on up and that but yeah it was a uh, it was it was class that was my favorite by far of the, i've started to be like i'm from manchester it's my favorite by far of the of the uh openers of moffat mm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's something you did did really well. So it won't be long. Well, it will. But it will. <laughs> until well, the next we're opener in from August, Muppet. man. We're in August already. Yeah, yeah. we're getting so there. It's gonna come around quick. Mm. So we've got a Christmas special, and then what is it? Springtime. Yeah, spring. I've got yeah. new Star Trek as well in between uh, yes. that. So well, as, pl- as we've said before, I think there's plenty to do between God, that and then. Yeah. But it's nice to look look forward to. Another thing that's making me look forward to 
things a little bit more is uh, another thing that's in DWM this month is um, an interview with Andy Pryor, the casting mm. director, who I didn't know has been um, casting director all the way through, yep. you know, since it came back. And a brilliant, brilliant job he's done too. What oh, terrific. A, what yeah. a casting director. Yeah, he's done tremendous work. But he was talking about, um, you know, quite, they went through quite a few hoops to uh, cast the Bill character. And, you know, he's absolutely glowing about Pearl Mackie. And, mm. you know, when she came in, and she was the obvious choice. And Peter Capaldi sparked off a, in a way that he hadn't done with anyone else that had been auditioned. And, you know, she's, she's excellent at comedy without making it overly comedic, yeah. which I think is a really nice balance if you can pull that off. So, And I think she did in that little thing, was it Friends friend from the Future or something? Thought, was it? Yeah, uh, well, I think, I think she looked mm. brilliant. Yeah. She was like a brilliant breath of fresh air of an assistant. Just fun, going out, you know, saying stuff that normal kids say, dressing like what kids do, because we don't know, because we're old. That was, <laughs> the, that was the funniest thing when he said, Moffat said, well... Why is she dressed like she's from the 80s? Well, she's not. She just dresses like what young people do. We don't know about stuff like that. So she dresses herself. I was like, yeah, good on you. Because we were like, oh, she looks like from the 80s. Oh, she's probably going to be from the 80s, this girl. That's the era she's going to be from. No, that's what kids dress like, apparently. We don't know what they're doing. So. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what youngsters do. Yeah. But no, Andy, Andy Pryor he kicks it out of the park every time. He's brilliant. Mm, so yeah. she looks good. And he didn't have much to say about Matt Lucas, but you know, I suppose Matt Lucas speaks from himself, really. Yeah. Um, he was a bit disappointed that the part was so small for him in that Christmas special. But he you know, he knows that Matt Lucas is a, a lifetime Doctor Who fan. And... Oh, he is. So is Frank, so Frank Skinner. This is what I love about Doctor mm. Who. And the, the, these sort of quite big British guest stars that come back into it. Yeah. Particularly like Frank Skinner and Matt Lucas. Although I wasn't a massive fan of Matt Lucas or the Christmas special. No, no. He, he's, a life, he's a lifelong fan. Like David Williams is a lifelong fan. Mm. As Frank Skinner like, says, a lifelong fan. There's loads of people working on this show that have been fans since they were kids. Mm. And it's brilliant because it just must be the greatest thing in the world, you know, doing something in Doctor Who. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if he's a lifelong fan, but David Suchet's just been uh, yes. announced. Yes. What's a bit of casting that is? Yeah, the Landlord is called it. I don't, is, is that a slightly down market Time Lord name? P- yeah, pissed up Time Lord. <laughs> it ah. is I, the Landlord. <laughs> Hello there, lads. How are you doing? That was, that was me trying to do a French accent really badly. Pint of the usual. Pint of the usual. I suspect you're not. Not even making sense now, Jim. And on, on, on that, on that uh, drunken Frenchman. Uh, it's time for us to call it a night, isn't it? Yeah, I think it probably is. Yeah. Well, as always, Jim, it's been an utter pleasure Likewise. chatting about Doctor here with you. Mm, well, let's hope we have some uh, more interesting letters next time. We might do, because it's a slightly no, more varied we, magazine this time. So We won't, but that doesn't matter. We'll just no. talk about stuff in a magazine. We'll find something. We will indeed. It's a fanzine show, and we're talking about a magazine, so that all relates somehow. And letters do too. Anyway, I've been Bob Fleming from the Proctor Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. And I've been Jim Cameron from the Crenard Podcast. And likewise, cheers for listening, and we'll speak to you next month. Bye-bye now. Bye. Welcome to the TARDIS Library, a place to talk comics, novels, audios, and more from the worlds of Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Kevin, and it's time for some more Doctor Who comic reviews. It's going to be a quick one this month, because I've only got one issue to look at. The final issue of the 4th Doctor miniseries hasn't been published yet, so the focus is solely on 12th Doctor 2.7, part 2 of The Twist, by George Mann and Mariana Lacoustra. If you recall, 
Last month, we had the Doctor indulge in his love for punk music while visiting the huge space station known as The Twist. Here he met bass player Hattie and Jakob, a man on the run who'd been framed for the murder of his best friend. Together, the three had begun to uncover some kind of conspiracy before being pursued by security forces into a park and suddenly confronted by a giant red-furred beast. To start with, the Doctor does his usual thing of marvelling at the beauty of the creature, while Jakob pulls at a metal panel hidden in the grass. In desperation, Hattie whacks it over the head with her beloved pace guitar, and the three escape into some kind of service cave under the park. Jakob's clearly been in these spaces before, and it was here that he previously encountered the fox creatures. The Doctor's keen to find their warren, and continues to explore, despite the protestations of the others. So following the natural-seeming tunnels, they eventually emerge into a gigantic cave full of wildlife. This is one of two auction domes of the original colony ship, buried in the rock as the structure of the twist was biomechanically grown around it. Suddenly they're surrounded by more of the creatures, who identify themselves as the foxkin. The Doctor tries to reason with them, but he's pulled away by Hattie before he can be attacked. To escape, he and his companions tumble through a large airlock-type portal into the heart of the ship, the Stasis Farm, where the original colonists slept during the long journey through space from Earth. The problem is, all the Stasis pods are full of skeletons. None of the colonists survived the trip, which the Doctor confirms by interrogating the ship's records. But if that's the case, where did all the indigenous inhabitants of the Twist come from? Eager to find out more, the Doctor does the unexpected and triggers an alarm, summoning the Foxkin, and the trio are captured, much to Jakob's disgust. Taken to the second hidden auction dome, which contains a complete city, they're hauled in front of Kanek, the leader of the Foxkin. There's a much bigger secret here. Kanek is the high sequencer, which means that for the human inhabitants, the Foxkin are really... And that's where I'm going to stop. Because I don't want to spoil the ending. Not that you won't be able to figure it out for yourselves before you turn that final page. You see, that's the real problem here. It's all a bit predictable. The Foxkin are just what they sound like. Giant talking foxes. Another on the list of anthropomorphised animals as aliens. We've seen lost colony ships before. We've seen hidden societies before. I was just hoping for a bit more. There are also parts which don't make logical sense. Would a vast colony ship full of thousands of people really just be abandoned as lost? How has the Foxkin city remained hidden for thousands of years, with all those technologically advanced humans up above? Especially as any Tom, Dick or Jacob seems to be able to open the secret doors at will. I'm all for suspension of belief in science fiction, but I don't know. Maybe I've just been exposed to too much genre fiction over the years and expecting too much originality. Art-wise, the high standard of last issues maintained, even if the foxkin are just giant foxes in tattered robes. There's a lovely image of the prehistoric biodome, complete with curl-tailed lizard on a stick, and the stasis farm, which is reminiscent of the chamber from Tomb of the Cybermen. The foxkin city is obviously based on images of Roman architecture, with its squares, amphitheatres and dome palaces. I do wonder if there were some deadline problems on the art front, because the exotically named Agus Calcagno and First Centurion are listed as art assistants. I can't see a huge amount of difference in Mariano's figure work, so maybe the assistant was just on backgrounds. It's also worth mentioning the sterling work from the colourist, Carlo Cabrera, which really adds to the mood of the strip, especially a superb page where the Doctor discovers the fate of the colonists. I really hope that George Mann has a couple of tricks up his sleeve that take this in a less obvious direction next issue, but based on this one, I'm not holding out much hope.
I do think there's more to Jakob, though. He knows too much. And that cybernetic eye still hasn't been explained. Fingers crossed for part three, then. Just time for a quick look at the variant covers. And it's a pretty bland bunch, to be honest. Alex Ronald usually does excellent work, but his image this month is a standard, if nicely coloured prose. Wilbrock's photo cover is forgettable, so let's skip over that. Simon Myers continues his album cover homages with Clara in place of the waitress on Supertramp's Breakfast in America, famous, of course, for the logical song. I have seen him do much better, though. There's a Doctor Who comic day cover from Todd Nauk, who seems to be getting a lot of work at the moment, where Peter Capaldi seems to be thrusting his crotch at the reader, which is slightly odd. Best of the bunch is the cartoon-esque cover from Zach Simmons Hearn, another artist who's done tons of work for The Phoenix, plus his own self-published series, Monstrosity which is really excellent and well worth checking out. Okay, that's about it for this month. Quick reminder that you can read the full version of this review, along with a couple of images, on my blog, Ravings from the Rubber Room. It'll be up around when this podcast is released. There should finally be a couple of other new posts there too. Till next month, bye from me. Well, hello everyone. I'm back again to talk about Doctor Who, The Glamour Chronicles, Big Bang Generation by Gary Russell. This is a book I've been trying to finish for months, literally, and you'll know that if you've been listening to uh, past episodes. And I'm here today to say I'm still not done. But I've read more. I've read more. There's a lot more Benny Summerfield in the sections I've read, and that might be a huge draw for some people. I know there are tons of Benny, Bernice Summerfield fans out there, but I'm not one of them. So the fact she's in here is just kind of annoying especially with the callbacks to the seventh doctor you know she was just in a recent exchange with capaldi saying oh you were scottish last time i knew you you know where are you from you're from glasgow and it's like oh god let's just get past this and i think i mentioned a few episodes back fearing that this book was set in my hometown which is sydney here in australia because i always feel odd about things that are set in my home city. Especially things like Doctor Who. It just doesn't feel right that the Doctor would be in Sydney. I know this sounds bizarre, but go with me. Even if it might sound absolutely smashing to many of you out there in other countries, to me, the Doctor is meant to be in a slightly damp United Kingdom and uh, not much else. And of course, that's born of my early years with the show in the classic era. It's hard to shake. I know in the modern era... People growing up with the new stories think it's very common for him to be in America, for example. That's another place I don't really think of the Doctor going, but uh, he does now. So, look, I know this hang-up, and it is a hang-up, is all on me. And I was going into the book feeling like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like something set in Sydney. But I've got to say, even though I acknowledge that, even though I say that hang-up's all on me... um, (laughs) The Sydney scenes in this book go much further than just making me cringe. I mean, it's, it seems clear that Gary Russell's been to Sydney and probably loves the place and he's trying to cram in tons of references and he's probably loving writing. He's probably typing away thinking, oh, what can I mention now? Oh, I'll mention this place. I'll mention that place. I'll mention that activity, whatever. And maybe to someone overseas, again, that sounds great. But when he has the doctor in Darling Harbour, which is basically a tourist trap with, a, I guess, a few nice restaurants nearby, and then starts name-checking all these other places. Yeah. You know what it's like? Well, actually, I won't tell you what it's like. I'll, I'll read you a, a bit. Let me open up here this page. 
95. Senior Sergeant Rhodes had seen a lot in his career. Everything from Hoons trying to bungee jump from the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So there's our first couple of references, Hoons and bungee jumping from the Sydney Harbour Bridge. To uptight and overprivileged politicos demanding the best seats at the St George Open Air Cinema. Now, we don't really say politicos in this country. We would just say pollies, probably, if we're using an abbreviation of politicians. And the St. George open-air cinema. I mean, St. George isn't, like, the location. St. George is actually the branding. It's a bank. Um, It's this open-air cinema they have um, near the Botanical Gardens in the middle of Sydney. And St. George Bank sponsors it. So he's he's already thrown in the Harbour Bridge and Hoons and politicos, even though we don't say that, and (laughs) this branded event... I don't know if he knows that's a branded event. Uh, How does this get into a a book like this with branding? Anyway, uh, despite not having bought tickets, he dealt with speeding cars full of criminals, he dealt with irate parents, and once he'd even had to ask a famous pop star not to do an impromptu free gig in the middle of Pitt Street. So there's another Sydney reference. But he doubted he'd ever dealt with anything quite so weird as a massive pyramid just appearing in the harbour. So we're back to the harbour. Right in front of the bridge, another reference, on the circular quayside. So we're getting very specific, the circular quayside of the harbour. It's not North Sydney, it's the, the city end. Okay. Uh, apart from the shipping it was blocking, so referencing that, yes, he knows shipping comes up and down through there. Uh, and the choppy waters were playing havoc with the ferries and tourist boats. Uh, again, some more references. The biggest problem was the car shunts that occurred on the bridge when people got understandably distracted. Luckily, his colleagues in the ambulance service, so we're referencing them, hadn't reported any major injuries. But all the triple zero services, so referencing that we dial triple zero, we don't dial 911, we don't dial whatever you might dial in your country, we dial triple zero. Gary knows that, so he's put it in the book. Uh, all the triple zeros. Uh, were reporting a great deal of calls and it was hardly surprising. Senior Sergeant Rhodes was standing at the Hickson Road Reserve. So, now again, we're getting very specific. The Hickson Road Reserve. Okay, well, that's good to know. Would mean absolutely bugger all to most people overseas and probably even many people in Australia who don't live in Sydney. But, yes, he's at the Hickson Road Reserve getting the best view of what was either a massive publicity stunt for a movie that no one had bothered telling the authorities about or was just some weird installation from the Museum of Contemporary Art just behind him. So, (laughs) again, he's he's in the Hickson Road Reserve, but the the MCA is just nearby. Um, Oh, look, I'll shut it now. And so it goes on. Look, I, I don't mean to hack on Gary because Gary's done so much for Doctor Who over the years and he has written some good stuff. But as I say, reading books that are set in my hometown or watching shows set in my hometown that aren't normally set there. I mean, when Mission Impossible 2 um, was all set in Sydney. Oh, God, I, I hated watching that. I mean, it was a terrible movie to begin with. But just, I don't know, it's weird. There's, there is this sort of cringe factor when I see people who I don't think should be in Sydney, like the Doctor or whoever, uh, popping up in it that makes me cringe. But then I think you can tell from that text all these name checks and references as if to say, look, I've been to Sydney and I know the MCA is near this place and I know that there is a thing called the St. George Open Air Theatre, uh, cinema rather, and so on. Um, it just gets a bit much. You know, I as, as a parody, it's like if I wrote a Doctor Who story set in London and part of the text ran something like, the Doctor quickly ran over Westminster Bridge, 
Could the solution really lie in the London Aquarium? He pondered this as the London Eye and Southbank Centre came into view. No, he thought, the answer might be in the Tate Modern or Shakespeare's Globe, both of which weren't far away either. But first he had to pass the National Theatre and the National Film Institute. Brain feverishly working, he also considered Gabriel's Wharf, the Oxo Tower and Centre, Millennium Bridge and St Paul's Cathedral as possible locations he might need to seek out too. It was going to be a busy day in London, in the greater London region, the most populous city of England and the United Kingdom, originally founded by the Romans in 43 CE as Londinium, and I could go on. Again, I don't mean to hack on Gary, but just the way these references are popping up in a book I'm already not enjoying reading, it's making things really hard, you know. Because people don't write like that when the Doctor's in a UK location, do they? They don't throw in all those references to locations. There might be one or two, but nothing as blatant as the, the Sydney references I've just read. So, yet again, my reading of this story has slowed down. Um, Even though I really want to get to the next book, Deep Time, which, as many of you know, uh, I accidentally started to read the first chapters of and absolutely adored. I think Trevor Baxendale's probably written a really great book um, that I really, really want to get back to reading. But me being me and being slightly OCD and being a Doctor Who fan in general, I mean, those two things probably go hand in hand in some ways, uh, I I need to read this. I need to finish Big Bang Generation, even though I don't care that Benny's in it. I cringe every time Sydney's mentioned. There's all sorts of stuff that oh, I just don't like. I mean, a little later on from that bit I read you that one of the cops is talking to his police dog and he calls it Dal, like it's an 80s, you know, soap opera or something. Australians just don't say, like, how you going, Dal? You know, unless they're being, like, silly and doing it deliberately, or um, (laughs) they're really antiquated. Um, It's just a Sydney and an Australia I don't recognise, and I'd like to think by living here I'd be well-placed to to say whether it's recognisable or not. Anyway, I don't mean to go on again, I don't mean to say all this bad stuff, but that's my honest take, and that's how I'm feeling about this book. And out of the... uh, the three Glamour Chronicles that have been released. I thought it was the first one I was going to dislike the most, but I think even without reading half of this book and without reading the next book uh, fully at all, I think it's going to end up being Deep Time is the pick if you're wanting to read any of them. Um, Royal Blood, second, even though it's not a great book, and this is a distant third Big Bang Generation. Anyway, that's me done. I've probably gone on a bit too long, but hopefully it was amusing in some ways. I'll see you hopefully next month to tell you I finished this and I've been reading Deep Time. Well, here we are at the end of the eighth Doctor Who show. What an episode it's been. As always, my thanks to the team, to David, joining us for the second time, first time as co-host, Ian, Jim, Bob and Kevin. Thanks for all your great contributions, fellas. I'm really happy with how this episode came out. I don't mean to blow my own trumpet or our own trumpets or, oh, that's just starting to sound a bit weird, but uh, I am really happy with how this episode came out and I'd be really curious to to hear from you out there as to what you thought of this episode. Was it a good length? I know it's a bit shorter than our earlier episodes. Uh, did we talk about things you're interested in? What do you think of class? 
coming up. Do you know more about it than we do? Uh, what about those Power of the Daleks animations? By the time the show returns, we may know what that's all about. Or what was in the latest Doctor Who magazine? Do you read it? Do you agree with our letter lords? Why not write in and tell us what you think of those things and anything else that's on your mind to do with Doctor Who at hello at the dwshow.net and we'll read it out at the start of next episode. To close, you might remember back in episode three, it's a long time ago now, I know, we had some Doctor Who Dark Odyssey promos from our good friends at AM Audio Media. Well... To close tonight, we have a follow-up report from some PBS friends in Buffalo in the US, and, well, it looks like some things haven't gone quite to plan with Doctor Who Dark Odyssey. Anyway, I'll press play on the tape now, and you can hear all about that. See you again on September 25th in the Doctor Who Show, episode number nine. Number nine? Number nine? <coughs> So how'd you feel about being cast in this American version of Doctor Who? Well, you know, I, I uh, at first I was thrilled because I thought mm-hmm, it's such mm-hmm. a classic franchise yes. that I thought, well, you know, I grew up watching it. My children grew up watching it and, you know, it would be wonderful, but uh, it's, it's, it's completely horrendous. It's, uh, it's nothing I thought it would be and uh, it actually it, it goes against everything that Doctor Who used to be. I mean, I... I trained at RADA, you know. I spent five years with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I thought, well, a trip to America it might open up avenues on Broadway, maybe Hollywood, you know. But what, what was it specifically about the show that, that you didn't enjoy? Everything. Uh, the actors were horrendous. Uh, the writing, it was like a three-year-old was given a crayon and a pad of paper and said, you know, go to town. And then they just gave it to us to eat. This regurgitated slurry of a script. Horrendous, horrendous. And how did you find working with the American talent? Well, I mean, they're just—they're not British, are they? I mean, they're not—they're not the classically trained breed of actor that uh, I'm used to working. Definitely not the caliber. But I, I do admire the Americans for being able to uh, be so carefree in their acting. It's just this group was just. Hey, her. who is this guy? It's me, the Doctor. Brought to you by Tampax. Yeah, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about here. So. Oh, uh, how did you? How did you get on set? How did I've been you listening the whole time. I live downstairs in the basement. I, I think I think yeah. we have to clear this guy from the studio. You know, I the, wish you'd clear him. Doctor. That's wonderful. There's a restraining order on this I guy. Know, you know, Security! I remember this guy. Security! Do you know hey, what acting a, is? He's an actor. He's a star. I don't think you know what acting is. Acting is, first of all, acting is not... No. Acting is not showing up at 12 o'clock for a call time of 6 a.m., all right? That's not acting. Acting is not coming in without your lines memorized and improvised. No, this is, ridic- this is ridiculous. I will not work under these conditions. I'm Fire bu- this guy! Oh, I think so. I'm bound under contract to work with I'm you. I'm like Batman now. If I'm I Batman. ever, ever run into you at an award ceremony, look the other way, sir. So, uh, I have nothing yeah. at this point, we just want to thank everyone for tuning in to yeah. PBS. Yeah. And we'll be right back to Masterpiece like to Theater. If you'd like to phone in now for your pledges, a- we're taking pledges oh, now. 1-800-PBS. I'm telling you, if you don't... Get out! 
Why, you don't know yet. Hey, don't grab this ascot. This ascot was given to me by... Stop, stop, don't stop it. Stop it. No. And thank you for supporting WNET and supporting public television. Thank you, and now back to Masterpiece, Masterpiece Theater with Alistair Cook. Thanks for listening, everybody. Would someone shut these guys up? I'm playing Spamblin, Judah Spam, and Hamlet about meat. This is WNET-TV, Channel 17, Buffalo. At this time, we conclude our broadcast day. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at The DW Show. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.